Welcome to the Alien Wellness Think Tank podcast series. The Think Tank is an emergency medicine organization led by residents for residents to improve the culture of wellness during residency training. Take a listen to our conversations with our wellness strategists and mentors. Hi, everybody. Welcome to the Wellness Think Tank podcast. My name is Katie Rebelo. I am an emergency medicine physician faculty at LA County USC in Los Angeles. And today I'm joined by three amazing residents from across the country. And we are here to discuss wellness in the era of COVID. How are you guys doing today? Oh, we're doing well. I'll just introduce myself really quickly. My name is Jackie Furbacher. I am a second year resident at The Ohio State University Wexner Medical Center in Columbus, Ohio. Hi, my name is Sunny Lukovic. I'm a PGY2 at the Jacoby Montefiore Residency Program in the Bronx. Hi, everybody. My name is Sydney. I am a PGY2 at Harbor UCLA Medical Center in LA. Well, thanks for joining me today, ladies. Sunita, I'm really curious because you are working in one of the hospitals in New York City that is the epicenter of the American pandemic. How would you describe your experience now that the pandemic has hit the streets of New York? Uh, So it's drastically different in RAD. And I think the easiest way to sort of paint the picture is to tell you about a typical day in RAD and how that's changed since the pandemic started. We typically work at three sites as part of our program, uh, Jacoby, Moses Montefiore, and Weiler. And I worked primarily at Jacoby, which is our public hospital level one trauma center. We see more than 100,000 cases a year. And as a PGY2, I work in one of two zones. They're called East and West. And they both see ESIs of one to three, but West is more for the surgical cases like the penetrating traumas, the ortho cases, undifferentiated abdominal pain. And EC is more of the cardiac arrest, severe respiratory distress, STEMIs, CVAs, and sepsis. We're usually busy, so I'll see about 8 to 12 patients in a 12-hour shift, depending on how many of them are really sick. And the sick ones, the ESI level 1 and 2, they typically, once they hit the door, go directly into our recess space so that we work on them as a team. And that consists of two junior residents, one to two senior residents, and attending, and maybe two nurses altogether. And on a bad day, it happens about three to four times a shift. At the peak of COVID, I think the majority of my shift was spent in or near a recess bay because the less acute COVID patients were being seen at a medical tent that we had set up outside. So we were seeing really within the walls of the ED only COVID, uh, really severe cases of COVID. And there was not really that diverse pathology between East and West that really drew me to to the program in the first place. And it was pretty much the same algorithm for each of those patients that were in the recess bay. You get them on a monitor, you give them supplemental oxygen, you figure out their code status, decide whether to intubate or not, and stabilize as much as you can, then move on to the next one. I think the hardest cases for me were the cardiac arrests, which we all presumed were uh, in some part due to COVID. So we, instead of, you know, having our big team together in the recess bay, we were trying to limit exposure to our staff members. So we would have a team of maybe three or four people as opposed to our team of seven or eight, which was particularly difficult because we no longer had the teamwork that I had grown accustomed to and really loved as part of this program. It was basically a couple of doctors and a nurse and and each one of us were sort of figuring things out on our own. So you feel like now that coronavirus has hit the ED, because you're trying to limit exposure to providers, you feel like that teamwork that is so integral to emergency medicine has kind of 
gone by the wayside in order to protect providers. Right. And of course, we, we would still debrief about cases and brainstorm outside of the recess phase. And, but it was so different because we were no longer together in that moment. And we were no longer sharing that physical space that we were so accustomed to. We didn't have the nonverbal communication that we had so perfected before COVID. Before all of this happened, when we were in the recess bay, it was almost like a symphony. We didn't have to tell each person what to do. And we would sort of fall into our roles naturally and easily. And it was such a beautiful thing to be a part of. So compared with a typical day before coronavirus arrived, you feel like there's kind of this lack of teamwork, lack of camaraderie that you used to have. What other things have changed within the ER and within your education that you know has kind of like affected your day-to-day wellness? Uh, yeah. So I think the biggest thing that has changed in my training is that in the past month, all I've really seen are COVID cases. And there's Obviously, a diverse presentation of COVID. We know that there are GI symptoms, predominantly respiratory symptoms, altered mental status, but ultimately, our treatment has been pretty much the same. And the algorithm that I mentioned before doesn't change much from patient to patient. And then the other thing that's particularly hard to deal with is the fact that we have so much personal protective equipment on us, shielding our bodies and our faces, that it's really hard to connect with patients. And one of the things that I love about emergency medicine is that. We are on the front line and we're seeing patients on their worst day. And we are the people that they see immediately when they hit the door. The fact that now they're only seeing our eyes, I mean, it's really hard to be able to connect with patients with just that very limited visual interaction. So one of the things that we tried to do in my program was to print pictures and put them outside of our personal protective equipment. Yeah, I think that's such a great idea. The residents at LA County are also doing that. And I think it's a really unique, creative way to allow the patient to see what you actually look like underneath all that protective gear, because it's very intimidating and scary. Like you said, they're coming in on their worst day, and then they don't even get to see the person who's taking care of them. I'm curious, uh, Jackie and Sydney, how your experience in the middle of the country and then on the West Coast, how your experience is comparing to this? So I can speak first, just as an East Coast, West Coast thing. I also am at Harbor, UCLA. So it's also a county program. We're used to seeing very high acuity, tons of patients coming in every single day. The recess bays are going all day with and all of our EMS transfers that are coming in throughout the day. So normally, just on a day-to-day ER shift, we're seeing a lot of high acuity, a lot of diversity. We're a level one trauma center, so we also see a lot of trauma. My experience is different to Sunita's just because we haven't had that huge, huge, overwhelming surge of COVID patients, but our ER has been inundated with COVID patients, but we haven't hit this limit where we feel like we're totally overwhelmed. We've been doing a great job as an ER being able to come together as teams and prep and being a couple weeks behind the surge that happened on the East Coast, we have had more time to prep. So we've been blessed in that way. So we went from seeing all of these really diverse, sick patients. And then as the word got out that COVID was getting bad, that people should stay home. I think that California in general did a pretty good job with the shutdown 
and the public health information that was going out. So I feel like we had a really steep decline in the amount of patients that were coming into our emergency room. So for a few weeks, we were just seeing very low numbers, very low volumes of patients, some COVID PUIs here and there. And then over the past few weeks, that's when it's really picked up. And we really, as well, we're not seeing the diversity in patients that we're used to seeing. We were just seeing mostly respiratory distress, respiratory failure, possible COVID, possible COVID, lots of cardiac arrests, which as well are being presumed as COVID. And even with our trauma resuscitations, a lot of our traumas are found down patients on the street or falls on blood thinners. And it would turn out that after we're doing our work up on these patients, they're altered and they're febrile and they most likely have COVID. So I think that as a program, a lot of our residents have had that shared experience where there isn't much diversity in the type of pathology that we are seeing. It is mostly COVID. But over the past week or so, our volumes have started to pick up again, and we are seeing some of our regular patients. So Sydney, I'm curious, help me understand, as a PGY2, what exactly is your role in the ER and how has coronavirus changed that in terms of like intubations, procedures, that, that sort of thing? So as a PGY2 at Harbor, we are expected to be seeing the majority of patients on the board that are coming in. We're responsible for seeing a higher number volume of patients and seeing as much pathology as we can. And we're also expected to go to all of our ED traumas, our TTA level twos and run those. We're responsible for all of the medical intubations, assisting with any procedures that need to be done in the ER, just so that we can get um, better experience through the volumes of patients that we're seeing. It's been a little bit more difficult in terms of the procedures and also just like the recess standpoint with these COVID patients, because a lot of the times, you know, it depends on whether you as the PGY2 is going in to see this COVID patient or whether your senior resident is going to go see the COVID patient. And then from there, like what Sunita was saying, it's very similar. We want to keep the numbers of people in the room as small as possible. So if my senior is going to go see this potential COVID respiratory failure patient, a lot of times they will be the one doing the entire workup with a nurse and the attending outside the room, trying to keep as many people from being exposed as possible, which means that they will be the one consenting and and talking to the patient about goals of care, possible intubation. They will be doing the intubation. And at the same time, they've been doing the central lines and any other procedures that need to get done for that patient at that time. So whereas in the past with the whole team mentality where maybe the senior resident will have us intubate and then we'll throw in a line, but they're doing everything else, it's kind of limited our exposure a little bit and our procedure numbers, including intubations. So that's been a little bit more difficult. But our program has been very receptive to that. And they've been letting us as PGY2s over the past couple weeks or so primarily take responsibility for these patients. And they are allowing us to intubate these patients because we will be senior residents in the next couple months as well. So basically in the beginning, in order to preserve the safety of the staff and to do what's best for the patient, you were losing the opportunity to do the procedures and the intubations that you otherwise would have been able to do and are expected to do as a PGY2. Yes, I would say that that's correct. I think that obviously if it's a patient that I'm primarily seeing or I saw them first, we do help out and 
if it's my patient, I'm going to take, I like doing everything for that patient and being there for each step of care and being able to designate who's going to help out with what. But it was definitely challenging not being able to intubate these patients in the beginning, going based off of the recommended guidelines that the most experienced intubator should be the one doing the procedure, whereas that should really be the attending. But they were letting senior residents do that because we're a teaching facility and a lot of our grads are going to be attendings in a couple of months. So we have kind of had an open conversation with our leadership and just as a residency program in general. And we really work together to try to figure out how to get everybody the best experience possible with different procedures, with leading resuscitations, while keeping everybody safe and keeping that in mind. Yeah, I can imagine that's uh, extremely frustrating because you do like to take complete ownership of the patient and do everything for that patient. And I'm curious, Sydney, in terms of teamwork, do you feel similar to Sunita in that the teamwork has kind of decreased because you are trying to limit providers? Or do you feel like the teamwork is more cohesive because you're kind of all in this together? Like, What's your perspective on that? So I would say overall, I think that at Harbor, our teamwork is amazing. And it's the reason why I decided to be at Harbor for my residency program. I just love how everybody is able to work together and work as a team. And as a really a level one trauma center, we're used to the trauma teamwork and the recess bay, as well as when we have all these really sick medical patients and everyone has a designated role. Everything is very organized. People know what they're doing. And we work together as a team so that everyone gets the best learning experience they can from each patient, whether you're a first year, a medical student, or a senior resident, and the attending is always there to help out and supervise. So in general, we have a really strong bond between our nurses and our ER staff in general. So that's great. I think that with this whole COVID situation, it's very similar, again, as to like what Sunita was saying before, where we're limited on who we can have in the room. So even with these bigger cardiac arrests, we're still trying to limit as many people as possible from entering the room if not necessary, if they're not needed. So we'll have a respiratory therapist, we'll have a nurse, we'll have our senior resident, and we'll use mechanical CPR devices if necessary, or we'll have a couple other people in the room to help out with compressions if we think that it's not going to be futile. And there's a lower likelihood that the patient actually has COVID. With our resuscitations, I feel like it's the same exact situation where we're limiting the people that can go into the room. So it doesn't have that same teamwork vibe that we had before and the same strength. But at the same time, when you're one of those people in the room, you do feel that stronger connection with the people that you're working with because you're the only people in the room that are working to keep that patient alive. So I think that there is still a deep sense of connection and teamwork. It's just different and it's, it's not what we're used to. Jackie, I'm curious, how is your experience comparing to Sydney's and Sunita's being in the Midwest? Yeah, so I think a lot of things that both of them said resonated with me. The PPE causing a real challenge in connecting with the patients, particularly as they face end of life. We don't have visitors in our emergency department or hospital anymore, except for very special circumstances. So trying to have these um, really intense conversations with family members and patients over the phone through a mask that makes it hard to speak. I've had a number of patients that have communication barriers that having a mask on makes it much challenging, whether it be language 
or they prefer to read, need to read lips. So that was hard to be able to communicate. And then I think the limiting the number of people in the room, making sure that we're protecting our staff as much as possible. So when these really sick people come in, how do we take that minute to put on all the PPE so we protect ourselves because that's just as important, making sure that we can keep our staff healthy. I think that was something we're all emergency medicine physicians and providers and in the ER, everyone wants to jump in to go help. There's all hands on deck. We get multiple levels of trainees in the recess phase, which is really fun and kind of gets everyone all excited. But then here we have to take a few minutes to make sure that we put on all the right PPE before we run in the room because making sure that we go home and stay healthy and take care of ourselves is really important in this pandemic that we're all experiencing. I think in Ohio specifically in Columbus, we get to work at a couple different sites as well. We at Ohio State have a community site as well as a big academic site. And then we have a nationwide children's hospital, which is where we primarily do our pediatric training. Every hospital sees overall different types of patients from the community and then kind of how to handle the volumes of the COVID patients, where they go in the emergency department, if there's a special wing for them or not, who's going to get tested, how we're testing Having to deal with that rapid amount of change on even a shift sometimes was challenging. I think one of the things I love about emergency medicine is the ability to have a set of resources and solve problems with a bunch of people on my team. And I think in this situation, having that set of resources constantly changing has been challenging. It really pushes you to find ways to stay positive and optimistic and making sure that we're all still trying to take care of our team and the ED as well. I think those moments of Looking at the staff in the room when it's a a tough case where somebody passes away, having that moment of connection just with the eye contact or I'm wearing goggles often for the patients that I'm seeing. And so that's kind of even limiting that eye contact. So I think overall, the experience has been something that I'm not sure anybody really expected and knew how it was going to be. I think this experience has been something that we just every day show up and we try to have a good attitude and Remember that we're here to take care of patients. I think something that'll be really interesting is Ohio has started to phase back in outpatient procedures and they have a whole plan of how they're going to try to reopen our state. And like both Sydney and Sunita mentioned, COVID sort of took over our pathology as the primary diagnosis. Um, We do see a large volume of cancer patients in our hospital through the James Cancer Hospital. And, you know, those were often coming over to the new COVID wing for the shortness of breath. But as this all changes with these elective procedures, how is that going to change our pathology? Are we still going to be worried about COVID? How long is all the PPE really going to be going on? I think those factors are things to kind of take one day at a time. I feel like if you start to think, how long is this really going to go on for? It can be a little bit overwhelming. I'm not sure if anybody else has had that feeling of when is this truly going to go back to life as we knew it before, going in with all the different levels of residents and providers to take care of the recess patients, the trauma patients. I'm not really sure. Um, But I think you know, it's really good to hear from other places around the country and see what other people are dealing with, see that although we've had different levels of patient volumes and Sunita in New York City has had much higher amounts of COVID and it sounds like really tough cases, I think there are a lot of similarities that we can share and find that this is a, there are common experiences for us. Yeah, it sounds like across the country, you all are struggling with 
patient-physician interaction and human connection given the high levels of PPE. You guys are all experiencing difficulties with your education in the clinical setting due to the coronavirus and the fact that we really don't know anything about this virus and how it works and the pathology and just trying to protect everyone. I'm curious what your experience is with adding the level of language barrier, because I know at least in LA, we have a lot of non-English speaking patients, which is a challenge at baseline. How are you kind of tackling that problem with the high levels of PPE and trying to maintain some level of human connection? I think that one of the great things about being in LA is that a lot of people speak fluent Spanish in general. So a high proportion of our nurses and our ER staff and our physicians are fluent in Spanish. So that is very helpful in these situations. If our patient is lucky enough to have a nurse that is fluent in Spanish, in terms of consenting them for procedures and going through goals of care discussions, it's much more personal and I think that you can really explain to a patient and when you're able to have a native speaker, have someone speak fluently in a patient's native language, they're able to better understand the actual outcomes and how serious some of the decisions that they're going to be making are in terms of their care for this disease. It's been difficult, especially for me, because I speak some Spanish, but I'm definitely not fluent. So I have been using translators when I don't have nurses that are fluent in Spanish or someone else in the ER that's fluent, that's in the room with me already to prevent exposure. So just carrying the translator phone, having it covered, having it in my back pocket, I definitely see that there is that lack of human connection there. And I worry sometimes that patients don't understand how grave or how ill or how serious their condition actually is when I'm going through a telephone. I'm just curious, Anita, what your experience with the language barrier is in New York City. Yes, it's pretty similar to what Sydney mentioned. We have a large Spanish-speaking population in the Bronx. I am lucky enough that I speak pretty fluent conversational and medical Spanish. So I don't encounter as many barriers in that regard. But I mean, I don't speak Albanian and we definitely have a large Albanian speaking population as well. So trying to communicate with somebody via a phone is challenging even without all of this. But I find even more challenging is when you're trying to speak to their family member through a phone because we're also not allowing visitors in the ED. So coordinating the phone interpreter to a phone line with a family member is horrendous. Um, There's a lot of miscommunication. Even with English speakers, it's hard to explain to somebody over the phone what's going on who's never seen a patient so ill. You know, because before COVID, we would have visitors in the ED and they would be able to see their loved one struggling to breathe or were really altered and they would witness it firsthand. To try and explain, you know, how critical their condition is over the phone and what steps need to happen and how rapidly they need to happen and talking about all these decisions that are incredibly difficult to think about even on a normal day is really hard. I'm curious for you guys, if you guys have experienced any of this anxiety with yourself. I know I've intubated a couple of COVID patients and I remember one patient speaking to her family member on the phone. And I think there's not too many times that I'm intubating patients who are actually able to talk somewhat to me before I intubate them. Usually they're altered or so sick that they're not really quite making complete sense. And it's more of that emergent 
were going to intervene where this was, um, I got called to help in the ICU to do an intubation. And it was really interesting to hear her say goodbye to her loved one on the phone. Like, you know, I'm going to, but not necessarily like really maybe understanding what was going to happen. And then I think something that kept coming up for me later on was like, what if I get intubated? And like, what if I'm in that position? You know, I think that the reality of that is probably pretty low just because I'm young and otherwise healthy. But I think just thinking about, you know, we are going to the hospital, we're doing the best that we can to protect ourselves, but I'm seeing varying practice patterns with the people I'm working with, with what they're doing to decon when they get home. Am I taking it home with me? Am I spreading it to anybody? Thankfully, I don't have anybody who I live with that's really vulnerable to COVID, but it also, you know, it's still like you're still going to the grocery store. It's still driving in. For me, I drive a car to work. Do I decon the whole car? It's just so interesting to like see how this has really started to impact me as a person, let alone trying to like take the best care of the patients and communicate with them. So I was just curious if Sydney or Sunita, you guys had any experiences thinking about what it was like if you were to get sick or how you have managed that at all? Yeah, it kind of comes and goes in waves. That's what I would say. On some of my the days that I'm seeing more COVID patients, sicker patients, younger patients that are intubated in their 30s, it definitely gets to me a little bit more and it weighs down on me. And I find myself thinking about it more. I'm trying to do the best I can to stay positive during this time period. But it is really difficult because we see this day in and day out. And it's the constant stress of seeing these patients and how sick people can get and how serious it can be. More of the stress for me is that I'm worried about bringing it home to my loved ones. I do live with my husband and he has asthma. So I've been, that's been in the back of my head that I need to make sure that I'm completely deconning before I come into my house. So I've been taking a lot of extra time to change my scrubs at work, make sure that I have a separate bag that I put those in. I change my shoes before I get into my car. I have a jacket that I keep in my car that doesn't go into my house. As soon as I get into my house, I throw all of my clothes, including my new scrubs, into my laundry machine, and I immediately get into a separate shower just so that I lower the risk of getting my husband sick. And that has definitely been the thing that weighs down on me. I am worried about getting sick. I'm blessed to be younger and healthy. So like you said, Jackie, I feel like we're less likely to get the more severe sides of this COVID illness where we would need to be intubated. But I have seen younger people that didn't have that many medical problems that have been intubated because they were so hypoxic and tiring out. So it's just in the back of my head that it could really happen to anybody at any time. And we just have to do the best we can to protect ourselves and the people that we care about. Uh, Yeah, just to add to what, what has been said, I think one of the most surreal moments was when I sat down with my family And I had an end of life discussion with them about what my goals are in case I get critically ill and require intubation, telling them ultimately I do not want to be tricked and pegged. And I even talked to my fiance about the life that I want for him in case I die. And I know it's super morbid and uh, something that I never had to think about at 29. But like Sydney said, we were seeing, you know, a 29 year old pregnant patient, a 27 year old previously healthy law student end up on mechanical ventilation and in the ICU. And not to mention all the really young Chinese doctors in Wuhan that them really sick and ultimately needed really, really critical care. So my experience as a faculty member is vastly different from yours because my formal education is complete. But I will say, just to, to speak to a word about 
the decon and the family discussion, I do have a six month old at home and I have an older mother-in-law who watches him during the day while I work. And it's been really stressful because of course I worry about getting both of them sick. Two months ago when this, you know, hit the shores of the West Coast, I really just sat down with my husband and had a frank discussion with him of, should I be here? Should I be staying home? And how can I decon? Should I separate myself? But like Jackie said, we have no idea how long this coronavirus pandemic is going to last. I can't really see myself separating myself from my infant for months, especially because I'm exclusively breastfeeding him. To do that would be like a major lifestyle change for us. Ultimately, we decided what was best for our family was to just stay together. And if I felt like I had a high-risk exposure where I wasn't properly PPE'd and protected, then I'm going to plan on isolating myself or if I get sick, I will be isolating myself, but I'm taking basically the same decontamination precautions that Sydney is taking and kind of hoping for the best, but it's definitely a stressful time. So we've kind of talked about how your experience as a resident has changed in the hospital and the clinical setting and how it's kind of altered your patient, physician, human interaction with the loads of PPE that were required to wear. I'm kind of curious how your education in the classroom has changed given that we're no longer, I mean, most residencies are no longer meeting in person. How is your program kind of approaching that and how do you feel like it's affecting your education? For our program at Harbor, we used to have conference every single Thursday for about four to five hours. And that would consist of different formats, whether that was small group learning, lectures, we would do lots of simulations, active learning with ultrasounds in the room, and procedural practice. So going from that and being able to see your co-residents every Thursday, if you were able to make conference and have breakfast with them, or if you're finishing a night shift, grabbing breakfast and staying for some lectures and then going home and just seeing everybody's faces. It was a really nice way to just reconnect with everybody, see attendings that you haven't seen in a while or haven't worked with. And you have that camaraderie between everybody. I personally learn better when I am somewhere in person where I can see people actively listen to what's going on. We've changed our entire platform now to online Zoom sessions. And we also have asynchronous learning that we do online on our own every single month. So we've kind of just combined that now where we still have our conference time that's blocked off for all of our residents through a Zoom call. But it's so much different meeting with people over Zoom, not being able to have those in-person interactions with people and not being able to actually do simulations or practice procedures because we're at home on our computers. It's definitely changed a lot. I think that we're doing the best we can right now with the current situation, but I definitely miss the in-person live learning. So a big change for us is that we are a SIM heavy program and every Wednesday at conference, we try to do at least a SIM case or two, which obviously we haven't been able to do because it requires being there in person and interacting with one another. So we tried to move everything to Zoom and SIM sessions on Zoom are a challenge, but our program directors and the people involved directly with uh, planning the, the SIM cases have tried to invite one to two residents to our simulation center and go through a case and record the entire course of the case and then show it to us on video during our conference time. And then the whole program would, or whoever was at conference that day, would debrief about things that went right and wrong. And it was a great way to simulate a sim case, really, on Zoom. 
We're also doing Zoom formats. I think they pretty quickly adapted everything to be able to make it virtual, which I think to some degree has some pros. Like you can chat, people are able to engage a little bit more. So it seems like there's been a lot of good questions. The downside really is the lack of the simulation, kind of like Sunita mentioned, and then also just the lack of the in-person connection, feeling like you're part of this whole big group that is the best part about being in residency is the people around you. I think it also makes me a little bit worried that we can't really like check in on our friends without seeing them in person. It's much harder to see how people are really doing. Thankfully, you get to still see some people on shifts, but it's a lot harder to connect with everyone and really have that, hey, we're all in this together. Something else that we've done that has been helpful for that is using Zoom to do like happy hours and trying to connect with video chatting, but I don't think that can really replace the in-person connection. So I'm really looking forward to when we can all get back together. And at your Zoom conferences, do you feel like your educational content is still kind of on track with what you were learning before? Do you feel like you're doing more coronavirus lectures? Do you feel like you're getting coronavirus fatigue? What is the content of your of your lectures and how has it changed in this pandemic? So for us at Harbor, each month has a designated topic. So we'll go through like MSK one month, endocrine one month, trauma one month, kids one month. Overall, we've been trying to stick to that format so that everybody is getting the same education every single year. And we're able to cover those core topics for emergency medicine residents so that we've been exposed to all the information multiple times each year. But each week, we are trying our best to incorporate a little bit about coronavirus and keep everybody up to date on the newest information as well, just because things are changing at such a rapid pace. So it's really important for everybody to have the most up-to-date information as well. I think at Ohio State, we've been doing something very similar where we're trying to stay on track with the scheduled conferences, topic matter that we were going to go through small groups. We have rapid fire, case conference, things like that. The interesting thing that I've seen is that a lot of our upper level residents and seniors, those residents have taken on a lot of education related to COVID and have done some really cool stuff and have been given conference time to be able to provide education about ventilator settings and paired with respiratory therapy to talk about if this were to become an extreme situation, like how to set up your own ventilator and these like kind of basic things to just help us get the interesting learning from this pandemic, even though we still need to be responsible for all the other contents that we're going to be learning from. Uh, yeah, so I agree with everything that Jackie and Sydney have said so far. We're doing pretty similar things at my program. I will say that I'm getting a little bit of COVID fatigue at this point, and there's only so much that I can read about it. Every time I turn on any news source or the internet, it's everything is inundated with COVID. So it's hard to focus on that exclusively. We used to have a lot of guest speakers at our conference, and I miss that diversity of experience because they used to be from all around the country and even from all around the world. So I'm looking forward to having those things go back to normal. I'm curious, has your pediatric volume in your EDs shrunk? And how do you feel like that's kind of affecting your education in terms of taking care of sick pediatric patients? And how is your program trying to supplement pediatric education given low pediatric volumes? In our pediatric emergency room at Harbor, we've definitely seen much lower volumes of patients, especially the first couple of weeks when all of this COVID started blowing up in the news. A lot of parents were not taking their children to the emergency room, and rightfully so, because they weren't very sick. So they were checking in, either calling us or talking to their primary care physicians about what's going on with their child, especially if it wasn't an emergency. We've definitely have not, again, been seeing the volume of sick children 
children that we're normally seeing, but we are still seeing very sick kids coming in with EMS runs. So we're still able to get some of the recess and also the trauma, but the volumes are so much lower than they normally are. So we are not getting exposed to the numbers of patients and the diversity again in the types of patients that we are seeing, unfortunately. Our program is trying to do the best it can. We're doing cases and active learning in our pediatric emergency room when we have downtime. Yeah, most of our peds learning at Jacoby has been didactic. It's made me wonder if I'm going to be as confident and comfortable treating peds patients next year as a more senior resident. I think my experience has been very similar. I will say I saw just a straight appendicitis and it was really refreshing. That's awesome. So we've kind of discussed how coronavirus has permeated really all aspects of your physician life. It's affected you clinically, it's affected your resident education, and it's affecting your home life. We're all living in cities that are basically on lockdown, especially New York City. So it's kind of limiting our ability to do other things that might increase our wellness in the past. I'm kind of curious how being on lockdown and being in quarantine outside of the hospital is affecting your overall wellness. It's definitely affected my wellness. I think that one of the my favorite things to do in order to combat stress and kind of just like decompress is go to the beach, hang out with a bunch of friends, have some, you know, food together, go out, play volleyball and get together in big groups where we can all just hang out and relax. So not being able to see my co-residents and my friends that live around me has really impacted my mental health. Zoom is just not the same. <laughs> you don't get the same benefits from being on a Zoom call with friends as you would in person, but it's better than nothing. That's for sure. I think that what I've been doing mostly is just trying to get outside as much as possible, going for runs when I can, taking walks through my neighborhood. All of the beaches are closed around us here in the South Bay and also now in Southern California. So even just like taking a walk up to the beach and being able to see the water and have some of that fresh air has been very refreshing for me. And I also just adopted a dog. So I've been spending a lot of time training him and being outside with him and getting some extra puppy love. Yay, puppies! Living in New York City during lockdown is drastically different. My social life basically revolves around food, drinks, concert, plays. And I mean, all of that is gone. And I think the worst part is just that I'm not sure when or how it will come back. I'm sure the restaurants and the bars will start opening up eventually, but I wonder how long we're going to enforce social distancing. And I think one of the most charming and maybe sometimes startling aspects of New York is the interaction among strangers because we share such small spaces. You know, we're in crowded subway cars, packed stadiums, even streets. So losing that is almost like like losing the soul of the city, which is hard. I've also been trying to just spend as much time outdoors as possible. I'm a big runner, but running with a mask is pretty hard. So I've been changing that to just walking. And then just trying to be mindful of all the little things that I'm grateful for, all the home-cooked meals that I'm able to enjoy with my fiance now that we have more time to spend together. Honestly, Netflix and trashy TV. I feel like everyone is becoming better cooks in the era of COVID. <laughs> um, but, you know, I also did my residency training in New York City, and I just cannot imagine what it's like to have that city shut down. I, I don't even know if I would feel comfortable going outside, given that it's so prevalent there. Yeah, New York City is so, so different 
I live in Astoria, I, and it revolves around food, drinks, concerts, plays, and all of that is gone. And the worst part is that I don't know when it will come back and how it will come back. I'm sure the restaurants will start opening and the bars will start accepting customers again, but I'm not sure how long we'll have to enforce social distancing, wear masks, and, and be apart. And one of the things that I find the most charming and sometimes startling parts about New York City is the interaction among strangers because we share so many small spaces, crowded subway cars, packed stadiums, bars, even the streets are lined with people always. So losing that is almost like laying to rest the soul of the city, which is heartbreaking. Jackie, what's your experience been in Ohio? I can relate to kind of everything you guys have said. It's eerie to see places that were commonly full of people without people. Being outside has been the saving grace for me. I think if that were taken away, I would be in a much worse place. I have a dog as well, and it's been really nice to be able to still take her um, walking around in the area. And we're actually starting to get some green outside. So it's like, okay, sunshine's coming, warmer weather. You know, it, it, I think it it's those little things and like thinking about those things that can really help when everything else is crazy and it feels like out of control. So having a little bit of control in your life has been nice. I've also, um, I got a KitchenAid mix master and I am having a lot of fun baking. So that's been fun. The biggest thing probably weighing on me is thinking about, I don't have any family in Ohio. I just came here for residency and my parents are in their seventies and they're locked down in the Houston area. And I am really just wondering when it'll be safe to see them again. I'm turning 30 in August and I really wanted to get my family together for my birthday as we celebrated my older brothers. And I just don't know when I'll feel comfortable actually seeing them because I don't see COVID just going away like tomorrow or even in a few months like we all are hoping. I think it's going to be here for a while. So just kind of recognizing that we can't control the future, but find gratitude for the things in every day, find joy in the small things, continue to connect with people as best we can, enjoy the Zoom, FaceTime and video calls. Thankfully, with the FaceTime, you can do that multi-group, which has been kind of fun to get people from all over the country and my family together. I'm definitely looking forward to the day when we can all feel safe to be together and yeah, I can definitely empathize with that. I'm sure I think Sydney is currently on a staycation, if I'm correct. But I also have vacation coming up and will not be going to Florida to visit my family with my son like I was planning. I think that's probably been really difficult for physicians around the country, like not being able to really go anywhere or see family that doesn't live around you. It's been incredibly difficult as well for me. I can relate to everybody here. I'm from New York originally. All of my friends and family are currently in New York. And I was supposed to be in New York right now, celebrating my youngest brother's 21st birthday today. And then my dad's 60th birthday was a couple of days ago as well. So we were going to all get together and then go on a family trip. So just not knowing when I'm going to be able to see my family again and when it's going to be safe to travel. And even if it's safe to travel, there's like a fear in the back of my head that I might be asymptomatic, but I might still be a carrier and I can give it to my parents. I'm trying to maintain a positive outlook and know that we're getting through this. We will figure it out. Things are going to get better eventually and just keep looking towards the future. I think one thing that has really helped me in this like uh, missed 
events, missed vacations, missed weddings, all the stuff that's happening is that it's happening to us all over the country and it's also happening all over the world. So I feel like that FOMO feeling is not there, which is at least somewhat helpful because I feel like if that were the case, that would make it that much harder. I think that's going to be a big challenge is if the world does open up more and we still feel uncomfortable traveling, not being able to do that because of the job that we chose, that'll be really difficult to reconcile. But I think knowing that we're all kind of in this together and getting to see how different companies are coming to support healthcare providers and the community making PPE, that's the cool part about these bad situations. This is one of those times where we get to see we're all human, we're all having fears, and there's some kind of camaraderie in the fact that we can all share these like basic fears and anxiety, and then also what things that bring us joy and the good things that we can see despite what's going on. Yeah, like you said, Jackie, I think there is actually a lot to be gained from everything that we're losing right now. The you know loss of education, clinical experience, family interaction. I think down the road, we're really going to gain a lot of empathy, understanding, and resilience. I really appreciate you guys joining me today and kind of sharing your personal experiences and your stresses and struggles as you kind of navigate through this COVID era in residency training. Well, thank you for joining me for part one of our Wellness in the COVID Era podcast, where we discussed our struggles and stresses within residency during coronavirus. Next week on part two, we're going to discuss and focus on wellness strategies and resources, how you as residents are really battling the stress and burnout amidst coronavirus, and how you guys are preparing to transition roles to PGY3 in July. So thanks for joining me, and we'll see you guys all back here next week. And that wraps up a great episode from the Wellness Think Tank. Special thanks to our exclusive sponsors, U.S. Acute Care Solutions. You can reach us also on Twitter at WellnessTT. Until next time, remember that residency training should be about thriving and not just surviving. <laughs>